right before the March retreat began, uh, John and myself and a friend, Christy Tews, just came back to the U.S. from Asia. So those of you that are working with jet lag right now, uh, I can relate. May it pass quickly. And we were there, the three of us in Asia, um, co-facilitating or co-guiding a group on a pilgrimage. And the pilgrimage was called In the Footsteps of the Buddha. So we went to Bogaya, where the Buddha fully awakened. And we went to Lumbini, where he was born. And we went to Kishinagar, where he passed away. And we went to Saranath, where he turned the wheel of Dhamma and gave that teaching that Donald was sharing about last night, the Four Noble Truths, and several other of the kind of sacred sites that were impactful in the Buddha's life. And for me, it was an interesting experience co-guiding or co-facilitating this pilgrimage because I had never been to any of those spots on the planet before. So there I was trying to be of support and of some service and guidance, and it was all completely new and fresh to me as well. I wanted to share with you a little bit about the Bodhi tree. Those of you that have been there just saying the Bodhi tree has already called up the visceral experience of that sacred spot on the planet in your whole being. I know that because it's one of those spots. And if you were like I was until a month ago and haven't been there yet, uh, paint a picture and call it in. I think that we all have our own personal Bodhi tree. In fact, sometimes when I look out at the hall at all of you, I sort of imagine a a great-grandmother Bodhi tree growing over all of us, you know, and may awakening blossom quickly in all of its forms and in all of the forms here that we call us. When one enters the site of the Bodhi tree, it's quite large. And as a practitioner, you begin by doing circumambulations. They're called koras. And there are three main circumambulation paths. The first one is on the top level, actually, uh, because the, the Bodhi tree and the temple actually had to be dug out or re-earthed in the the last century or so uh, that the current spot we have was covered under acres and acres of soil, you know, because the planet moves and breathes and changes. So the first core is the highest. And I was guessing that it's about a half a mile long. I'm not very good with distances, but it took me more than 10 minutes to walk around it at a fairly normal pace. So you do the first circle. And then you walk down some stairs to the second circumambulation, which is a bit shorter. And then you walk down a little further to the last circumambulation, which is around the main temple and the tree itself. And they have covered that ground with beautiful marble. It's just exquisite and huge marble slabs. And they'll be at any time from late in the night till before the dawn and all day, hundreds and thousands of pilgrims circumambulating, working with their malas, saying their prayers, 
chants in more languages than I can count. Every culture represented, every Buddhist lineage represented, lay practitioners who are not monastics like ourselves, every color robe imaginable is all there. You know, everybody's there. It's one of those places where everyone's represented. And I love places like that on the planet. So one day, after I'd been there a couple days, I went by myself in the afternoon to do some devotional practice. And I was circumambulating these chorus, the long one, the middle one, the short one. The only one that's required to do barefoot is actually the circumambulation right around the temple and the Bodhi tree, which is not too long. But I was doing some devotional practice, so I was circumambulating all of the chorus barefoot. I just wanted to feel my feet and this body on this spot on the earth where awakening had so clearly manifested. Yeah. stepping and stepping and doing my practices. And at some point after I'd done more chorus than I could count, uh, the thought arose, my foot hurts. Oh, 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 my foot hurts. Well, I'm walking barefoot. I've been walking for a while. I'll just finish this chorus. And I'm walking, walking, walking. My foot really hurts. Huh. So I put my shoes on because it was a chorus. I was allowed to put my shoes on. And then I went down where I wasn't allowed to have my shoes on, and I walked that, and I sat under the tree and asked for guidance. Left some space for the tree to speak to me. And when I got up, I noticed that there was a slight limp in the step. And as I kept walking back to the guest house I was staying in, the limp got more pronounced. And I thought, oh... Oh, the, the Bodhi tree has offered me an injury. <laughs> oh, and, and, I, and I must confess that I also had the thought, oh, when people ask me, what did the Bodhi tree offer you? I don't want to have to answer. It offered me an injury. You know, it was very humbling. And sure enough, uh, foot was injured. And, you know, it didn't quite know what was wrong with it. The group that I was with uh, collectively decided with their limited medical knowledge that I had something called plantar's fasciitis. Just, you know, kind of a tendon and heel problem and, yeah, doesn't really matter. So, okay, label, plantar's fasciitis. So I spend the last day in Bogaya, that I'm in Bogaya, laying on my bed, taking care of the foot. And what I knew and it was a very, very hard one lesson, was that laying there on that bed, taking care of this precious foot, was no lesser practice than sitting under the Bodhi tree. I knew that. And it's a hard one lesson, that they aren't different practices. And so then as I was laying there and, and had enough space for insight to arise, I realized... The Bodhi tree didn't offer me an injury. It offered me verification of something that I already know, which is this body is the teacher. The same way as everything is the teacher. But the ways that we leave parts of our experience out and go, that's not really advanced practice, good practice, the real practice, whatever our version of it is, we all leave parts of ourselves at the door there. 
one of many things that I would wish for you is that conditions can come together during this retreat that you can welcome all parts of you in this hall and in this practice. In the door, whatever you've left out there so far, whether you've been here more than a month or just a few days. So body is teacher. And that's, that's what I want to share with you. I figured if that's one of the main things that the Bodhi tree revealed to me during this trip, then that would be a worthy thing to teach about. Uh, and the first foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the body that the Buddha taught. And uh, certainly the Buddha was fond of saying this quote that many of us know by heart, in this fathom-long body, the whole of the Dhamma is revealed. What does that mean? We don't have to look anywhere else. You know, the whole of the Dhamma, what he's referring to, was really the teaching that Donald gave yesterday. The whole of the Dhamma meaning suffering, its causes, its cessation, and the path to its cessation and peace are all revealed through this body. We don't have to look any further. So as I said to you before, this was a hard-won lesson that actually there couldn't be lesser practice nursing a foot or sitting under a Bodhi tree. So I'll tell you the story of when I first learned this lesson. And uh, I don't tell it lightly because it's a story of going to extremes, which of course there's a long lineage of that. Uh, Prince Siddhartha, when he first went onto the spiritual path, certainly went to extremes. I have that lineage in my background. Uh, I wouldn't want this story to cause worry to arise in your mind. This is a story of extremes. Uh, You know, you might think, oh, what if this happens to me? Or, oh, maybe it is happening to me. It's probably not happening to you. So now you're curious, what's the story? (laughs) Uh, The story happened here, actually. And... It feels important, actually, for me to share with you, because some of you are just meeting me for the first time, how close this retreat, this two-month retreat, is to my heart. Um, In some ways, this retreat is where I grew up in the Dhamma. I sat this two-month retreat uh, every year for nine or ten years as a practitioner. You know, and and I look around in the hall, and I had my favorite spots, the same way you do. And so the story happened on the two-month retreat here almost a decade ago, uh, right here in this hall. This side of the room, I won't tell you where. (laughs) So I came into that retreat with incredible ardor for both practice in its formal sense, the sitting and walking, and for awakening. I felt very, very ripe for awakening, whatever that meant to me at that time. And I had been doing a lot of sitting meditation before the retreat, so I felt very primed. I arrived the first day, I sat down on the cushion. Actually, at that point, I was sitting on a bench in my practice. I sat down on the bench, and I just didn't get up. First day of the retreat, I was sitting one hour, two hours. I don't even know how many hours. Sitting late, getting up early, day one, day two, day three. Um... At some point around day four, day five, I started to notice that my 
knee was aching a little bit. I didn't have a history of knee problems, and I noted it carefully, mindfully, and continued with my practice of striving and over-efforting with incredible passion. And then one day, I finished a meditation that was quite long. I don't remember how long. And I got up, and I just noticed, wow, my knee's really hurting. And, well, I'm going to go walk. So I went out near the water, right outside there, and I was walking. I didn't even finish the first walking path. I took about three or four steps before I actually realized that I couldn't walk. Something was wrong. Red alert, red alert. And I limped back up to the Opeka dorm where I was staying at the time and curled up in bed and tucked my hands under my arms in despair and thought, it's day seven of the retreat. And my knee, something is wrong. How am I going to practice? I was scared. I was hurting. I was in despair. So what that retreat awoke in me was the understanding of a more mature level of mindfulness that included wisdom. It wasn't enough to just note the pain at some point. There was, oh, maybe a wise response, an appropriate response, which was one of Donald's explanations of awakening, might be to take care of this, you know, to change postures, to ease off a little bit. What is wise effort? Sometimes less is more. Sometimes relaxation opens the mind much more than pushing. We know this. We learn it over and over and over again, right? Taking care of the body, listening to the body deeply, as Larry was explaining during the eight precepts uh, teaching this morning, not having ideas about what our bodies need, whether it's food, sleep, uh, exercise, how long to sit, how long to walk. Letting go of our ideas and deeply listening is one of the things that I learned. So they're simple lessons, but definitely applicable lifelong. So again, I say to you, if worry has arisen in your mind, oh no, my knee's been hurting. It's kind of rare. I hope you can hear the extremeness of the story that led to this injury. You know, and now it's well, obviously, sitting up here. It passed. You know? But I spent the rest of that retreat uh, a lot in other postures, which I want to talk about some. After the retreat was over, a few months later, I met with my teacher from Thailand. And uh, we call him Lumpur, and it just means great father. It's an honorific title, um, title of respect. Even at that time, he was uh, quite advanced in years as a title of respect. And every year I was working with him as a student and studying with him and practicing with him. And that year I went to him, I told him about my retreat, I told him what had happened. I was feeling a little self-conscious and a little shame that I hadn't done the formal practice the way that he had taught me. Uh, And so every year I would ask him for instructions for the last year because he was in the States for a month every year. So instructions for the next year. I said, Lumpur, what should I study for the next year? And he spoke very little English. So the translation went through, the translation came back, and the translation was, take care of the body. And I thought, oh, the translation must have gotten confused. And so then I asked him, 
uh, what retreat should I sit over the next year? How should I train? Translation went back. Translation came back to me. The answer was the same. Take care of the body. By this point, I was puzzled. I figured I'd ask one more question. Lamport, what meditation should I practice in the next year? Translation went across. Translation came back. And what the answer was, Heather, take care of the body or you won't be able to practice when you get old. You know, and he said it with great, just, you know, energy. Take care of the body or you won't be able to practice when you get old. I was aghast. You know, I didn't know whether to be uh, upset about his prediction that I might not be able to practice when I get old or be grateful for his prediction that I was going to get old. (laughs) Uh, You know, some of his students felt like he had some powers of mind to see into the future. I'm not saying whether that was true or not, but... You know, should I be upset or grateful? Uh, at that point, I really got it. Oh, the practice is to take care of the body. There's nothing more important. So that's where the Bodhi tree was verifying what was already under- understood, basically. And that's what happens. We have the same insight over and over. We come in, we share it with our teachers. I really get it. There is no solid, separate sense of self. And then you realize, oh, I said that last year, I said it the year before, but always it's deepening, right? We know that. So what did the Buddha teach about the body? When we think about his life story, he certainly had the same a challenge that I had when he was younger, which was that he took his practice to extremes. You know, whether it was extreme sense pleasures when he was a young prince, or whether it was extreme uh, renunciation when he was a young monastic, he certainly did that as well. And sure enough, the first teaching of the turning of the wheel of Dhamma that he gave in Saranath begins, my friends, there are these two extremes which ought to be avoided by one who has gone forth into the holy life. You know, and those are the two. So there it is. In the Satipatthana Sutta, or the first foundation of mindfulness, share with you the beginning of this sutta, you know, which is the four foundations, or I really like how Sylvia called it the four perspectives of mindfulness. Oh, this is a nice language. Thus have I heard. Right? So these are the words of Ananda reporting back. I'll talk more about Ananda uh, and why we have his report of the Buddhist teachings a little later on. On one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country where there was a town of the Kurus named the Kamasadama. So this teaching happened in a place on the earth, you know, on the earth body. We could go visit it. There he addressed the bhikkhus, or the practitioners, thus. Bhikkhus, he said, Venerable Sir, they replied. And the Blessed One said this, Practitioners, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana. What? Namely, these four foundations or perspectives of mindfulness. Surmounting sorrow and lamentation. 
I mean, that would be enough right there. This is an incredible promise. So today I'm going to talk about just the first foundation, our perspective of body. And then as we move through the retreat, the other perspectives uh, we'll have some teachings about as well. When contemplating the body as the body, there were six aspects that the Buddha illuminated in some detail. The first one was mindfulness of breathing. The second one was mindfulness in all four postures, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. The third one was mindfulness of full awareness in all activities. The fourth one was mindfulness of the 32 parts of the body. The fifth was mindfulness of the elements, uh, which are in our natural world and also in the natural world of the body, earth, air, fire, and water. And the sixth is mindfulness of what's called the nine charnel ground contemplations, or basically the decay of the body after the death process. So in this particular talk, I'm going to focus on the first three, um, breathing, the four postures, and full awareness, because each one of us will be practicing with these during this month. But I do want to say that if at any point in this retreat you have interest in the other three as far as taking it on as a practice, feel free to talk to one of the teachers that you're meeting with um, because they are very rich practices as well and it can be a whole other talk on those three practices. I really enjoy all six. The first technique, mindfulness of breathing. Um, Whether you've been here for two months and you're revisiting perhaps mindfulness of breathing or you've just arrived... Uh, This is what we've been focusing on as the forefront of uh, mindfulness in our practice these last days. And really on retreat we have simplified enough and set our intention strongly enough that that which is in the background of attention can be brought and is revealed in the foreground of our attention. Uh, The breath is the background rhythm to all life from the moment we're born till the moment we pass. And now we've invited it into the foreground. So the instructions on mindfulness of breathing in this particular sutta or teaching, uh, understanding that I breathe in long, uh, breathe out long, breathe in short, breathe out short, breathe in experiencing the whole body of breath, breathe out experiencing the whole body of breath, breathing in, tranquilizing the bodily formation, breathing out, tranquilizing the bodily formation. Uh, And you'll notice in these texts there's a lot of repetition. And it's because it comes from the oral tradition. These were all repeated and memorized. Uh, And so it's easy to kind of let the mind go into spaciness when you hear the same thing over and over. But at the same time, there's the possibility of learning the song of the suttas. And then there'll be a line that's just spontaneously remembered in a moment when you need it. So that's why I'm going to be sharing some of it directly from the text. So we've been working with this. We've been working with aiming the attention, whether an in-breath or an out-breath, and sustaining through that whole breath. Uh, We've been working with settling the body and mind, calming, investigating, for example, through... uh, either the noting practice or, as Sylvia puts it, the knowing practice. 
All of these things we've been training in. And I think that it's important to mention that simply noting what is happening, whether it's the breath, the body, the mind, the world, is the first step. And we note what is happening so that we can see. And I love the question that Sylvia gave in her talk. Actually, the teaching team's been talking about it ever since. What are we trying to see? The next part of this sutta points to what we're trying to see in terms of this teaching. And it talks about the insights. So I'll just share them with you. In this way, one abides contemplating the body as a body internally. Or one abides contemplating the body as a body externally. Or one abides contemplating the body as a body both internally or externally. Or else one abides contemplating in the body its nature of arising. Or one abides contemplating in the body its nature of vanishing. Or one abides contemplating in the body its nature of both. Or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. And one abides independent not clinging to anything in the world. So there's four main aspects of this insight of what the Buddha is inviting us to see when it reveals itself and when it's available. And the first piece is internally and externally. And this can be looked at two different ways. One way in terms of the body, internally, the parts of the body we can't see. And externally, the parts of the body we can see. So the organs would be internal, and the hair and the skin and the nails, etc., would be the external in that case. Uh, and, and bringing mindfulness to these aspects. But also, we could look for insights internally and externally um, of this body and other bodies. So this is the internal experience, or, or the closer experience, and this is the external experience. And during the retreat of that knee injury, I learned this external practice in a rich way. I couldn't do walking meditation, and I loved walking meditation. It's one of the hearts of my practice at that time, and couldn't do it. And so I would sit on that bench that's right outside room one, uh, where I see people, And I would let my gaze softly land over the whole courtyard where people would be walking there. And there was this one practitioner in particular, I remember him really clearly. He had a very slow walk and he was very graceful. It was just kind of inspiring, you know. Sometimes we see each other out of the corner of our eye and we get inspired. Sometimes we see each other out of the corner of our eye and we get filled with self-judgment. Depends. Um, So I was watching this practitioner do his walking, and I realized I could be mindful of the walking external, not this body. There was the same lifting and moving and placing. And the only thing that was missing was I couldn't be mindful of the intention that led to the volitional impulse to lift the foot, because it wasn't in here. So I'm not encouraging you to watch other people doing walking meditation. That would lead to a lot of self-consciousness. But then I made a leap. 
Because I'm always interested in how one practice and insight leads to the next. Uh, Every single retreat that I've ever taught or been a student at, uh, it always arises at some point in the retreat that somebody is breathing loudly. I'm sure you've noticed. And the humbling thing is that if we sit retreats long enough, uh, eventually that person is going to be us. Bring some compassion in. But I realized, oh, what if I was mindful of breathing externally instead of getting annoyed at that other person? There's an in-breath that can be heard. There's an out-breath that can be heard. There's a pause. I could aim the attention. I could sustain. And then re-aim and sustain to allow the reactivity to settle. And then once it's settled, go back to mindfulness of breathing internally. It reminds me of a a great line from Ajahn Chah, Thai Force Meditation Master, who used to say, when we're bothered by sounds, uh, take a look and see. Is the sound coming in and bothering you, or are you going out and bothering the sound? Who's bothering who here? It's a great line. Especially in a long retreat like this, where we get so quiet and so easily be startled by sounds. It's very sensitive. So I thought, ah, internal, external, breathing, walking. The second aspect of the insight is whether breath or body. In fact, all of these insights weave through all four foundations of mindfulness. It's the same insights with every foundation, whether it's body, feelings, uh, thoughts and mental states, or dhammas, mental objects. Same insights. I like that. It means they're inclusive. So the next insight is about arising and passing. This is the first of the three characteristics of existence of being a human being living a life, you know, that we see, oh, arising and passing. Of course, this is something that even a child knows. And their pet is there, and then their pet dies, and their hair gets longer, and they went to first grade, and then second grade. But we're talking about direct experience. And what we see on a long retreat like this is that it varies. So I like that the sutta says uh, we can notice arising We can notice passing, or we can notice both. At some points in our retreat, the arising factor will become predominant. And it feels like everything is birthing anew. Everything is fresh. And it's moving really fast. Birth, 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 birth. Everything is birthing. And then there's its opposite. We'll hit points in the retreat where everything is dying. And it's actually every, all experiences passing away so quickly that it's like we're, we try to hold on to it, just slipping through our fingers. Even an idea of what's happening has passed away before we can form the idea of what's happening. Oh, the dying. And then sometimes both are equally predominant in our attention. It's an insight. It's something to look for and to see and to drink in. The third aspect of the insight uh, is one that I love. It's just simply, there is a body. It's so simple. There is a body and it's breathing. There is a body and it's moving around. There is a body and it's in all these postures. The journey of embodying this body for some of us, and is certainly true for myself, um, can be a long, nuanced journey. And even if it isn't your journey that you have the conditions in your life right now where embodiment 
of having attention living in the body, in direct sensation experience in the body, is readily available to you. What I know is that we each have triggers. And if we give any one of us a certain set of thoughts or emotions or life circumstances, it's like, whoop, the attention goes right out. And it's gone in cycles of storytelling, dissociation, unconsciousness, whatever our flavor is. So for me, in moments like that, the simple insight, there is a body. If the mindfulness can just remember there is a body and the attention is gone, that's enough. The possibility of re-embodying is available in that moment. The fourth aspect of the insight is this beautiful line, one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. Another line the Buddha was fond of saying is, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing. Not everything but this thing that I want to cling to. Nothing. It's incredibly radical, uh, sometimes intimidating, and also inspiring. What would it be like in a moment to cling to nothing? Some of us have experienced that. And there's always that whiff that lingers even when we're caught again later. Nothing. One abides independent, not clinging to anything. So when I think of independence, you know, and what is independence, whether it's, you know, it's a very simple interpretation. Uh, I acknowledge that. But whether it's on an individual level or a group level, I was thinking about when a group of people or an individual gains independence, uh, one of the aspects is they are free to, what? To manifest in their nature without interference. So there's a non-interference. There's a non-manipulation. There's a non-controlling. Just free. And then things appear in their nature. You know, maybe conditioned nature. But there's no interference with anything. You know, and there's independence in that. We're not caught. You now, whether we're talking about abiding independent in the body or abiding independent in a social context, I think they have similarities. You know? And I wish I had more time to tease that out. But I invite that for reflection, you know. But we all know that The body is a place where I and mine is glued on. The insight, there is a body. It didn't say there is my body. There is a body. And so we glue this sense of I and mine onto the body, and it seems really real. Um, And then out of that, it gives rise to all the afflictive emotions, and we get really reactive, and uh, what? We hurt. It hurts. And that's the second characteristic. The first is impermanence. The second is is suffering, the way we cause ourselves and others suffering. So it feels important to note that even though we're talking about mindfulness of the body here, of course on an absolute or universal level, um, there is no body. There's no body. There's points of sensation in space that we label body. What is this? You can say, well, on a relative level, it's a hand, and it is. It has a function. 
We've labeled it, we've all agreed, which means that we can talk about it in a useful way, connect around that. Okay, so yeah, relative level, yes, it's a hand. Absolute level, what is this? Where's the hand? So the four postures. Again, the sutta says, when walking, one understands I am walking. When standing, one understands I am standing. When sitting, one understands I am sitting. When lying down, one understands I am lying down. Or one understands accordingly, however one's body is disposed. I love teaching about awakening in the four postures, and I teach about it a lot. And for the purposes of this retreat, we are doing a lot of emphasis on the sitting meditation posture. So I'm going to leave that be. It will be woven through the retreat. And um, I'm very happy that Larry plans to give an entire uh, talk on the walking meditation posture. It's incredibly important. And so I will leave that to his experience and wisdom and talk about the standing posture and the lying down posture. Because awakening can happen in any of these four postures. Uh, Awakening in the moment or awakening in a fundamental way. So we don't usually teach much about standing or lying down. Say a few words about each. But first, uh, I really want to thank Khanda because the yoga that she is teaching, the formal yoga practices that she is teaching, means that you are receiving, should you choose to receive them, formal instructions in all four postures. And we are practicing formally in all four postures on this retreat. And, and that's um, very important to me. So I thank you, Khanda, so much for the gifts that you're giving. And I know how much people are benefiting. Standing, in addition to what Kondo is teaching you. Uh, First of all, if you're choosing to do standing meditation, whether for sleepiness or to support the body in some way because of the conditions of the body, it helps to bend the knees to the amount that there's enough of a curve in the low back and that the tailbone tucks slightly so that when you're standing for a while, the low back isn't compromised. That's really important. It's a simple instruction. It helps if the eyes are downcast so that uh, they don't get caught up in the visual field. But if you close them, balance can get compromised. So just a downcast gaze. In addition to Khanda's instructions, or I know some of you have uh, Qigong practices, there are beautiful standing meditation practices in the Qigong tradition that you're welcome to use if you know them. And in addition, some of us stand and feel the breath. Some of us stand and feel our feet on the ground. Some of us alternate between feeling the breath and then feeling the feet on the ground as a touch point in between breaths. Some of us feel the whole body breathing and the gentle sway of the winds of the body, the air element of the body that moves the body in the standing posture. Those are all ways to practice. So as I said, I'm interested in this topic of awakening 
in all four postures. So I'm going to share with you a poem. It's an enlightenment poem by a nun who was a practitioner at the time of the Buddha. And her name was Mitikali. And this is her enlightenment poem. And it just so happens that uh, the standing up posture happened to be the posture of her expression of enlightenment. She said, Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me. And I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then, as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddhist teaching has been done. Lying down. During the retreat again and that knee injury, during the first part of that process of nursing the knee back to health, the state of healthiness, uh, there was a lot of distress in my mind about the inability to, as I thought of it, practice. And I'd kind of sit in my room and, you know, woe is me. I'm sure you've never done that, the woe is me mind moment. Uh, and I think to myself, I can't sit. I can't walk. I can't sit. I can't walk. And it turned into this little tune. Uh, for me, a sense of humor is imperative in this practice. So it turned into, I cannot sit. I cannot walk. I cannot sit. I cannot walk. I cannot sit. I cannot walk. And then when it was time for the punchline of that tune, all of a sudden the, the thought arose, I could lie down. This was a completely new thought. I could lie down and practice. And I can tell you from direct experience that lying down as a posture, uh, there's been as much insight uh, and concentration available at times in that posture as any other posture. It's not a lesser posture. And I figure if we train in all the postures now as conditions present themselves, and, you know, like myself, it's time to do lying down. Uh, so many of us will be going through the death process in the lying down you know, posture. How are we going to practice then? And it reminds me of a line that uh, Burmese master Sayada Upendina is fond of saying. He says, practice like you're old and sick even if you're not. You know, practice now. Practice if you're old and sick even if you're not. So lying down instructions, um, in addition to the ones that Khanda is teaching, If you're lying on your back, which most people do, um, it's very helpful to have the knees bent and the feet flat on the floor because it's not a posture we sleep in. So it's an immediate acknowledgement to the body. I'm not laying here to sleep. We can, of course, open our eyes if that's needed. Um, In times when drowsiness visits in a large way, one thing that I've found helpful is basically a reflection of the walking meditation practice. In walking, some of us do lifting, moving, placing. 
we could lay down and lift the lower arm, and it's just lifting, placing. And that brings in a quality of curiosity and energy and investigation in the mind and body that can allow us to deepen in the lying posture. Balance is really the key uh, in the lying posture. Not that it isn't in all the postures, but uh, if we don't have it in the lying down posture, we really are asleep instead of just lost in thought. That kind of sleepiness. So Ananda's enlightenment story. I want to share with you. Because it's hard to find an awakening story in the lying down posture. But I love Ananda's story. Maybe you know this story. Um, Ananda was the Buddha's cousin. And he was also the Buddha's attendant during 25 years of the Buddha's time of teaching. When Ananda agreed to be the Buddha's attendant, he had some requests to make of the Buddha. He said, I will be your attendant um, and I'd like to make some requests of you. One of the requests that he made was, I would like to be present for every teaching that you ever give, and if you give a teaching where I'm not present, will you please tell me later? And the Buddha agreed to this. Now, Ananda uh, had the gift of a photographic memory. And so, after the Buddha's death, he had heard every single teaching that the Buddha gave. And he had a photographic memory. And he remembered them all. And soon after the Buddha's death, there was to be a gathering of the Mahasangha, of the community of nuns and monks, to repeat the teachings and make sure that they had all of them. It was really the birth of the canon, this meeting. But somebody decided that there was going to be a prerequisite for this meeting, and the prerequisite was full enlightenment. You could not attend the meeting unless... You were 100% enlightened. In the Theravadan tradition, we call it arhatship. This was a problem because poor Ananda was only a lowly stream-enterer. So again, in the Theravadan tradition, there are four stages of the awakening mind-heart, stream-entry being the first stage. So it's important to think about that because we'll think, oh, I'm here in this retreat to get enlightened. But in fact, even in the formal teachings, it's enlightenment, not enlightened. So Ananda was in the process of enlightenment, but he wasn't enlightened yet. So what to do? He was the only one that knew all the teachings. Uh, Can you imagine? No pressure. Get enlightened fast, Ananda. So he was trying really hard, and, and he sat and he walked, and he sat and he walked, and there it was the night before this council, this gathering. He stayed up all night sitting and walking and pushing and striving. And you and I all know, was his meditation any good that night? No. Totally out of balance. And yet out of his deep caring heart, he was trying to wake up, you know. And all of us, if we didn't care, we wouldn't do this. We would not do this. We would be somewhere else. So he cared deeply, and he tried his hardest, and he failed. And the dawn was arising, and he thought to himself, oh, I have to go tell the council that I cannot attend. And he was exhausted, because he'd been striving really hard, and he thought, well, I guess I'll just take a nap, and then I'll get up and let them know that this isn't going to work out. And he was standing by his bed, and the way that I've heard this 
is that actually in between standing by his bed and the full relaxation into laying down posture to sleep, he had given up, he had let go, something released in the mind, and freedom was available in its full manifestation. And later he went to the council and said, I am here, and this is what I remember, thus have I heard. All the suttas began, thus have I heard. So, even in between postures, enlightenment is available. (laughs) And it's interesting because in the study that I've done about the enlightenment process, there's one trend that is uh, very apropos to mention. Because often when you look at the stories of the practitioners, they strive really hard. And they may have great gains in their practice, whatever that means. Um, But at some point, there's either they hit a wall, or there's a giving up, or there's a moment where the striving dies down and there's just complete collection and relaxation. So sometimes it's more of a dukkha process, you know, where it's, I give up. And then in that relaxation, in a non-formal meditation posture, awakening will arise again and again in the enlightenment stories. And sometimes it's, and then the mind collects and everything relaxes and, Maybe in a non-traditional posture, awakening arises. But it's an interesting trend. You know, we think, oh, I better go sit down and meditate or this isn't going to work. I encourage you to sit down and meditate. It's a lovely thing to do. That's what you're here to do. And check out the rest of the times. Which leads me to the third piece, the third technique, which is mindfulness of full awareness. We've been talking since the beginning of the retreat about the power of continuity of practice. And it's so easy to think. We sit and then we walk and then there's the kind of in-between time, the extra time. Uh, Maybe it is an extra. As I've listened to you over the years of my teaching and, and, and what you come in and share about when insights arise, it's interesting to me how often insights arise for all of us, uh, not in a formal posture meditation. And my theory about it is that actually the formal posture meditation in those cases is the ground and the nurturing that then allows the insight to arise. So it's not as if we didn't sit and walk, that like they wouldn't arise. But again, to open the field of when insight comes. So the intention, making continuity of practice a priority, in the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, one acts in a full awareness in all these times, going forward and returning, looking ahead and looking away, flexing and extending limbs, wearing robes, we could say our clothes, or carrying things, eating, drinking, consuming food, tasting, and, in fact, includes defecating and urinating and walking and standing and sitting and falling asleep and waking up and talking and keeping silent. Continuity of practice. So making it a priority, uh, anchoring the attention in the body. There is a body. Maybe choosing an area of the body to anchor the attention in during the so-called in-between times. Uh, The mental noting 
or the mental knowing, whichever one, whichever part of the cycle you happen to be in, and you'll notice it shifts over time. Sometimes noting is very supportive, and then other times it's just the knowing of experience that's enough. And you'll think, oh, I've got it, I don't ever need to note again. Then there's another cycle, and ah, noting is the appropriate response. Okay. Um, I would say choose some anchor activities in your continuity of practice. Practice. Um, And maybe some of them choose activities that you find easy to be mindful of, that you're just naturally mindful of, to build the muscle. And then maybe choose a few activities where you notice that mindfulness is almost never there. And really amp it up. You know? And the qualities of curiosity and uh, engagement, I... I think of it as the dance of mindfulness. There have been times in my practice where the sitting is hard and the joy of practice is moving from sitting to standing to walking and pushing and reaching and pulling and tying and drinking and moving and it's just, you know it. The dance, it's so sweet. That's the practice. And lastly, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear me say this, taking care of the body is the practice. Whether in the Satipatthana Sutta, all those different activities were taking care of the body. Um, There's a story from the time of the Buddha of a monk who was sick. And the other monks were not taking care of him. And the Buddha heard about this and he went to the monk and he actually found the monk um, laying in his own excrement. Because in India, um, the process of ill belly, as we learned once again on this pilgrimage, is part of the process of having a body. And the Buddha tended to him and cleaned him up and fed him spoonfuls of what he could take in, this monk, this sick monk. And then he went to the other monks and he said, My friends, this monk is sick. Why are you not taking care of him? And they said, well, he's not practicing and we are practicing. (coughs) Basically, they said, the practice is more important than taking care of him and my practice is more important than taking care of him. And the Buddha said, my friends, you've got it all wrong. If you don't tend to one another, then who will tend to you? Take care of this monk as you would take care of the Buddha. It is the practice. And many of us, at various times in our life, that is our practice, taking care of someone else's body, externally, taking care of this body. And it reminds me of the last line of one of the poems from Mary Grace's talk. It's from the Zen tradition. And the last line of that poem was, this very body is the body of the Buddha. So please, on this retreat, take care of this body as the body of the Buddha, because it is the body of the Buddha. It's the only body of the potential Buddha that you've got at this moment. So just as a postscript, because... uh, this phenomenon that we laughingly call a yogi mind where people can start obsessing about things. My foot is fine. It wasn't. It passed. 
So I'll just end with a quote from the late meditation master in the Thai tradition, Ajahn Mun. He says, In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine its nature. See its impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When its nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. So that is what I have to offer for your reflection. And I thank you deeply for the kindness of your attention. And I'm sure that for some of you, uh, taking care of the body and the kindest, wisest thing that the body needs in this moment is to move through that dance of mindfulness from the sitting posture, the standing posture, to the walking posture. And if that isn't true and the impulse doesn't arise, the sitting posture is available too. Okay? Enjoy. <laughs>